we're going through this psalm series. We're praying through the psalms together and, and trying to learn to do that as a discipline and, and just studying the psalms at the same time before we pray them. And we're doing that even during Advent. And I hope that each week you'll see how these psalms point us toward this Advent season. Last week, the psalm pointed us toward Jesus, the light of our darkness. And then all this week, our theme for Advent was Jesus is our light. And so if you were reading through the daily scripture passages, then you saw that theme. This week, the theme is Jesus is our salvation. And if you endeavor to go through that Advent guide and read each day this week, you will see each verse pointing toward that, toward Jesus as our help, as our Savior. And I believe we're going to see the fulfillment of that as well this morning in Psalm 34. I want to remind you of something in your notes if you are a note taker and you have the preaching guide out. This was our life truth from the summer, July 30th, when we had just started the Colossians series, Colossians chapter 1. This is the exact life truth that we had on July 30th in the sermon. And I want to give it to you again this morning just very quickly because I believe you're going to see the themes that were present in Colossians 1 on that day. I believe the title of that sermon was Intercession. You're going to see those same themes this morning in Psalm 34. So here's the life truth from that day. In a house of prayer, and I'll pause and just say, that is our calling. We believe that with all of our heart, that God has called this church to be a house of prayer, to strive to become a house of prayer. So I'm trying to constantly put that before you, but also constantly ask the question, what does that mean? Because I don't want you just to hear it as a catchphrase. What does it mean to be a house of prayer? How do we know if we are becoming a house of prayer? And so I, I gave you this life truth to try and point us in that direction. If we are a house of prayer, the culture of our church will be one that shares an attitude of absolute dependence on Jesus and an attitude that highly values opportunities to express our gratitude to Him for all that He is and all that He does. That's two markers. It's not the only ones, but it's two markers. Are we becoming a house of prayer? Do we have an attitude as a church that we are completely dependent upon Jesus for everything? Do people come into this church and if they spend any amount of time here, they pick up on that? If they go to a small group, they pick up on that. If they go to a discipleship group, they pick up on that. If they come to corporate service, they pick up on that. This church looks to Jesus. This church depends on Jesus. They pray a lot. They pray about things that I wouldn't even normally think about praying about. And another marker is that we will have an attitude of we, we, we enjoy every opportunity we have to express gratitude to Jesus. We look for those chances to praise Him, to share about Him, what He has done. The people, again, come into this church and they're going to pick up on that pretty quickly. They're going to hear conversations. They're going to hear testimonies from the week about what Jesus has done. They're going to go to the small groups. And the discussion isn't just going to be about worldly things, although there's nothing wrong with that, but there's going to be conversations that are just happening about 
what Jesus is doing in our lives. We come together as a church, praise and worship and singing. And look, some of us, that's our thing. Singing's our thing. Like we get it. This is what we might struggle with. Like the, the, the portion where we're listening to the Word. But some of us singing, it's just hard. We don't really get it. The main event is the, the preaching for us. But no matter which camp you are in, coming together to express gratitude to God from our hearts, He calls His people to do that. And, and the more we're becoming a house of prayer, the more the attitude of this church is we are eager for that. We, we find ourselves, I don't want to be late to church because I don't want to miss the expression of gratitude through song. I'm actually jealous if I, if I miss that. That starts churning in our hearts when we're a house of prayer. I want you to look for those themes this morning. Dependence on Jesus and eagerness to express gratitude. Because that's what Psalm 34 is about. We have the benefit of having the exact context of this psalm. Some of the psalms, we don't know the author or we don't know the, the reason they're writing the prayer, the, the song, but we know about this one. And if you want to read it later, it's 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10 through 15. That's the occasion. You're going to see a different name in Psalm 34. It says this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Ambalek. But when you get to uh, 1 Samuel Chapter 21 is a different name, but we believe it's the, the same situation, same person, probably just two names for the same king of the town of, of Gath, of the city of Gath. And essentially, David is before this king, and he's trying to, he, he's running from Saul. So he's already in a season of his life where he is in danger. There is a man who is threatening him, wants to kill him. He is running from Saul. He is hiding. He goes to this city. He, he expects to be able to hide there and not be recognized, but he, he is recognized. And he's brought before the king of the city or the leader of the city. And David realizes right away his cover is blown and he knows his life is in further danger and he is going to die. Not at the hand of Saul at this moment, but at the hand of this king of the city. And so David pretends to be crazy. In that moment, he acts like a madman. And guess what? It works. And he escapes. And David doesn't say, Whew, that was smart of me. I got out of that. I need to remember that tactic. No, what does he do? He goes and writes Psalm 34. And he gives all the credit to God. My little pretend play show in front of the king is not what saved me. God may have led me into that, but He is the one who delivered me. So this psalm is written by David on that occasion, and there are two primary takeaways from this testimony of David. That's what it is. A song, a prayer. We sang it this morning together to open the service. And it is a testimony of the goodness of God. It is a testimony of what God has done giving care and protection to His people. And I, I believe it is there for us to be stirred by that testimony 
so that we ourselves will learn to trust in God's protection and care, to depend on Him and express gratitude. And that's our two primary takeaways for this morning. So in your notes, takeaway number one, what we should be stirred to in this psalm, seek the Lord and expect His help. This should be the testimony of the believer. Seek the Lord and expect His help. Look at verse 4 in Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and He answered me. Let that be the testimony of your life. You can't give the testimony that He answered you until you first seek Him. Seek Him and expect that He will answer and that He will deliver you from all your fears. So seek Him how? In the big things? Yes. Seek the Lord with your life. Get up and open the Bible and seek the Lord in Scripture and expect that He is going to show up to you. Don't open it just as a chore. Open it expecting God. As you seek Him, He'll show up. Seek to abide in Christ. Seek to walk with Jesus and expect He will be there with you. When your fears come to reality and you are in the midst of trial, Seek the Lord and expect He will deliver you. But not just the big things. When you're at work and you just can't figure it out, stop and seek the Lord. When you're at home and you're banging your head against the wall because the same thing is creeping up over and over, the same situation in the marriage, the same situation in the parenting, the same situation in the relationships, and the continuity of the home. Stop. Seek the Lord. As Josh and I like to talk about, when you can't get the bolt off the engine you're working on, don't just walk away angry. Seek the Lord. When you have a plumbing issue at your house and you can't take a shower for two days, Speaking from real life this week here. Don't just pitch a fit in your home so that one of your kids texts your wife and say, hey, I think dad's losing it. (laughs) Stop and seek the Lord. Expect Him to answer. Luke 17. Luke 17, Jesus gives a, a curious verse. I say curious because it's one of those you read and you say, well, wait a minute, is that, is that right? And it's one of those passages that we've seen people in Christendom use so wrongly that we tend to, to maybe shy away from it because people have misused it, so we, we wonder how to use it. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith! And Jesus said to them, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, 
You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is commending what they're asking. It's a good thing that you ask for more faith. Let me tell you how powerful faith is. The smallest amount of it can do impossible things. This morning, part of Advent this year, one of our families in the church made a gift for all the other families in the church. It's a little ornament, but if you don't do a Christmas tree or thing like uh, anything like that, I still encourage you to pick one of these up. Jonathan and Alyssa Standards put these together. They're on the back table in a box. There's enough for one per family, so please get one before you leave. But in the center of the cross, there is a mustard seed. Take that and display that in your home. Take that and put that where you can see it. And every time your eyes fall on it, remember the smallest amount of expectation, Jesus said, you can do impossible things. So ask and expect. Don't take that verse and try to use it to manipulate Christ into your own dreams and wishes. That's what a lot of people do. But take a hold of that verse that says if you pray with expectation that He will help, He will. Be sure to pick one of those up on your way out. In your notes thinking about this idea of seeking the Lord and expecting His help. In the kingdom of God, how strong you are is determined by how poor you are. In the kingdom of God, how strong you are is determined by how poor you are. Now, I've talked about this to you many times. In the world, the kingdom of men, how strong you are is how rich you are. How much you have the possessions you have, the notoriety that you have, the resources that you have, how you depend on yourself, how you don't need people. That's how the kingdom of men see the strong. The kingdom of God is turned on His head. It's not the strong in themselves. It's not those with the most resources. It's the poor that are the strongest. It's the weak that are the strongest. David says, Psalm 34, verse 6 and 7, this poor man, I love it, this poor man, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Not this rich man delivered himself or this rich man was heard because God pays attention to those who have so much. David said, no, this poor man cried and God heard him. And who does the angel of the Lord encamp around? Not the mighty in themselves, not the prideful, those who fear God. Those who know their poverty. Paul Washer, an American evangelist, tells a story that he was surfing off the coast of Peru and that he found himself in red flag conditions and he was getting ready to go back to shore and he heard someone coughing behind him and he turned to see a young man on a boogie board drowning. His instinct was 
to swim toward that young man to help him. As he reached the rope of the board and he went to grasp it, he realized, if this young man gets a hold of me, he will kill me. He will drown both of us. So he begins to call other surfers to come over. He said eventually six other men came over. And it took them 25 minutes to get that young man to shore. He said when they got to shore, those six surfers, experienced big men, were shaking, scared to death. And he posed the question, what made that young man dangerous? Was it his strength, physical strength? No. He said that young man weighed half of what all those other men weighed. They all outweighed him by at least 85 pounds. On land, they could have taken him down with one hand. Was it his willpower? No, because he was scared to death and going under the water. What made that young man desperate? Excuse me, what made that young man dangerous? That was the answer. What made that young man dangerous was his desperation. What made that young man dangerous was he knew he had nothing else. He knew that unless someone else came along that he could grab a hold of so desperately that he would drown that person. He was going to die himself. So he was going to reach out in his desperation and grab a hold of whoever he could. And Paul Washer said that in the kingdom of men, we value those who can take care of themselves. And oftentimes when we get to the kingdom of God, we look at really pious people. We look at really godly people and we admire them for their strength. And he said, but the truth is, those who are the most dangerous to the kingdom of darkness are those who know their own poverty. They are the ones who are the most dangerous because they are so desperate. They know they have nothing. They are so desperate. They will reach out and they will grab a hold of the one who can save them. And that is Jesus. And you can't drown Jesus you can't take Him under. So you are called to grab a hold of Him as tightly as you can and do not let go. And that is the strength of your life. That, that is how you become strong in the kingdom. Don't look at your lack of resources. Don't look at what you do not have and become convinced that you have nothing to offer the kingdom of God or to help others. Confess your poverty. Confess you have nothing. Confess your need and grab a hold of Jesus and don't let go and know that when you do that, you are the strongest you will ever be. You are dangerous to the kingdom of darkness, not because of your power 
your strength, your will, but because of His. Furthermore, dependence on Christ, in your notes, dependence on Christ will adorn your life. Dependence on Christ will adorn your life. I mean, make your life beautiful. Your life will be adorned and made beautiful not by your independence, but by your dependence. In verse 5, in Psalm 34, it says, Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. I think you can take that verse at face value. I have seen people in this church that I've been around And I could look at their face, I could look at their countenance, and I could say, they've been with God. They've been with Him. They've been in the Word. They've been in prayer. They've been in worship. I I think you could take that at face value. But I also think it means something even deeper. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12-18 Paul is writing, and he's talking about how, I'll just read starting in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What does that mean? It means there were times where Moses would go, he would spend time with God, and literally when he walked away, his face was glowing. But over time, as he was out of the presence of God, that would begin to dim. So Moses started this practice that when he would go into the presence of God and he would return to the camp, the people of Israel, he would just put a veil over his face. That way, they couldn't see that it started fading. And so Paul uses this to point us to a greater reality in Jesus. Look at verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, to Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When you depend upon Jesus, what do you do? What does your dependence cause you to do? Abide with Him. Cling to Him. That picture of the drowning boy in the ocean. You are desperate for Christ, so you cling to Him. And what happens? You don't just get a temporary glow in your face that eventually fades away. You are transformed into His likeness. His beauty adorns your life. His person adorns your life. You become like Him. Let me ask you a question. If you are sitting here now and you say, I struggle with abiding. I struggle getting into God's Word and praying and staying close to Jesus. Here's my question to you. Do you see your need for Him? Do you see the poverty of your life without Christ? If not, that may be the exact reason that you don't abide with Him. Because you don't see your desperate need. You run to Him when you do. 
but pull away when you don't. And the call to us is, seek the Lord, expect His help. We need His help. We're the drowning boy. No one can save us but Christ, but if you will grab a hold and cling to Him, He will save you. And then, as you seek the Lord and He answers you, the second takeaway, cultivate cultivate gratefulness by making testimony your discipline. Cultivate greatness, gratefulness in your heart by making testimony a discipline. Look at verse 1. This is the second takeaway. You could, you could circle verse 4. I sought the Lord and He answered me. Let that be the testimony of your life. Here's the second one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. When? When I'm having a good day, things are going right. I've seen all the answer to the prayers. I don't have any difficulties, any troubles. David says, at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. We've been, we've been going through this together as a church. We've been talking about it over and over. Praise as a weapon. Thankfulness and gratitude to God as warfare. When the enemy comes and creates doubt in your mind of his goodness, causes you to wonder if he cares about you. When the, the trial or another trial hits, or a succession of trials hit, and, and you're taking a hit in your own soul, praise as warfare. I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. When you give testimony of God's goodness, of the goodness of Jesus, it does something in your heart. It battles and breaks away at that criticism and discouragement. But it does something else. It fertilizes, if you will, tills the soil of your heart so that it is ready for more gratitude. Ready to express more gratitude. I asked this question Wednesday night at our Rely gathering. I encourage you, if you don't make it a practice to come to Rely to prayer and worship, I, I encourage you in the new year to do so. But Wednesday night, I asked the question of our group as we were praying together. I'm going to ask the same question to you. I don't mean it as a gotcha. I mean it as a diagnostic question. I imagine you could think pretty quickly of the last text, the last phone call that you got from someone where they had a criticism to vent, a complaint to talk about. I can't believe this person did that. I can't believe this is happening. Here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I'm worried is going to happen. Can you believe that this is happening, going on in our world? You can think of that pretty easily. You might even be able to think of the last time you made that phone call or made that text. Here's the diagnostic question. When is the last time you interrupted someone's day to just say, I, I have to tell you what God did? I, 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 I have to tell you what just happened. I have to tell you about this prayer. I have to tell you about the answer. I have to tell you how I just saw God move. When's the last time someone interrupted your day? to tell you that. I hope you say this morning, yesterday, I ask it as a diagnostic question. If we are a people who bless the Lord at all times, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
This is going to be our discipline. I'm going to seek the Lord. He's going to answer me, and I'm going to figure out who I can tell about it. I'm going to post that on social media. I'm going to text that to someone, what Christ has done. In your notes, your constant testimony of God's goodness does a few different things. Number one, it encourages the hearts of the godly. Your constant testimony of God's goodness encourages the hearts of the godly. Look at verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. I was telling the group Wednesday night when I first read that, let the humble hear and be glad, my immediate question was, wait, hear what? What are the humble, the godly hearing and being glad over? God's Word, certainly we should do that. We should humble ourselves and be glad when we hear His Word or prayer that's being prayed. But, but in context, what he's talking about is my soul boasts of the Lord. I talk about Him. And when the humble hear it, it gladdens them. They're glad. They hear my testimony and it encourages their heart. I, I know we've mentioned Josh's name like six times. It wasn't intentional this morning. We didn't have like a, let's be sure to talk about Josh today. But the re- Jennifer's like, y'all saying a lot of good things about him. G- uh, the reason I asked Josh to read this psalm this morning is because I texted him about this not long ago. I had an experience, I don't know, a year, two years ago. We're in the prayer room. We're getting ready to pray. No, we are praying. We're in the prayer room. We're praying. And all of a sudden, I hear... Josh, and I hear him coming into the church. Literally, I, 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 he's coming into those doors, and he is belting at the top of his lungs that song we sang this morning. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And I could hear it getting louder and louder and louder, and he was just singing it at the top of his lungs, and then he, he gets silent and walks in the door. And I've never forgotten that. It's not because he's a great singer. And I've heard him sing that song a lot of times in small group. But that morning when he was belting that song out, there was sincerity. There was an authenticity to it. And I texted him a couple of weeks ago and I said, no matter what God does in your life, never stop being that person. Never stop being that man who belts out the testimony of God with sincerity. And that's who we're called to be. And when we give our testimony, and it doesn't have to be singing at the top of our lungs, although that's part of it. But when we share with one another the goodness of God, it encourages one another. It encourages other people to go, oh, well, (laughs) I need to do that. I'm forgetting in my trial to stop and seek the Lord and He will answer me. It encourages the hearts of the godly. It invites others to experience His love. It's an invitation to others to experience the love of God. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When you... Give testimony 
I sought the Lord and He answered me in the big things and the small things. When you testify of His goodness because you are walking with Him, because He brought healing to your disease, or because He helped you get the bolt off the car engine, when you give testimony of His goodness, you are inviting others, come and try this! Come and experience my God. Come and experience Jesus. Taste and see that He's good. I don't want to get, you know, too out there with this illustration, but I mean, it's pretty much there in the verse. Don't you turn to people and say, taste this. Try this. It's so good. No matter what, it's just some food at a restaurant, something that you are uh, something that you want to lay hold of. The Clevelands and the Ballantines have told me about this cookie place over on the other side of town that they've been going to and grabbing cookies from. And so I told Patty, like, the next time you go there, like, get me some. And then she texted me this week and said, I'm going. Do you want me to pick you one up? And I was like, I, I ate a lot of junk this week. Give me another week. But, like, I just want to try it because they've been talking about it so much. You can get more information from them if you want to get in on that. But it's, it's taste and see the Lord is good. It's a call to experience Him. When you give testimony, the godly and the ungodly hear that. And you're inviting them to come and share in Him. When He says, fear the Lord, you saints, those who fear Him have no lack, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you will never have a moment you're not hungry. It doesn't mean you're never going to have a moment where you're not in a trial. If so, David wouldn't have to write about the testimony of deliverance from the trial. You will lack nothing that you need from the Lord for your deliverance. Every good thing that you need for Him to save you you will have it. So look to Him. When you give your testimony, it will encourage the hearts of the godly, it will invite others to experience His love, and it will fuel corporate worship. It fuels corporate worship. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Agape, if we seek the Lord and expect Him to answer. If we give testimony of His goodness. If we live our lives that way. If throughout the week, you're seeking God, expecting Him to answer in the big things and the small things. And on Sunday morning when you get up, you can set your mind and say, let's go to the household of God. And let's exalt Him together. I can't create this in you because I can't create it in me. This life of asking the Lord and receiving answers and giving testimony cultivates gratitude in our hearts. But I've said this to you a few weeks ago. I said I think this is the most important thing that we do as a church. I think this is what fuels everything else. I ask you, make it your priority to be here. Because this is what the people of God do. But I also told you, it's not my desire to strong arm you into that or guilt you into it. Because what I desire 
is for us to wake up on a Sunday morning. I desire for us to go to bed on a Saturday night and be able to say, I cannot wait to go and exalt the name of God with the family of God. I can't wait to go and hear my fellow brothers and sisters singing His praise. I can't wait to go and see the faces of the radiant who have been spending time with Him. And I can't wait to go and let them hear me sing in my testimony. I can't wait to greet someone and maybe have a chance to tell them what God did for me this week. I can't wait to go and share in that with the family. If we are living this life, a house of prayer, dependent on Jesus and highly valuing every opportunity to express our gratitude to Him, the whole countenance of our time together will change. It will be genuine and sincere gratitude and worship to God. And let me say this. If you have testimonies of the goodness of God, I want to hear them. And if you have testimonies of what God is doing, it may be something the entire church needs to hear. Don't hold back from coming to myself, to Sam, to Kevin, whether it's in the midst of the congregation and the service, or if it's sometime during the week. Don't be afraid that we might say, share that with the church. Share what God is doing. And it might be that He deems for that to be shared with everyone. So how does this tie to Advent? The second week of Advent is Jesus is our salvation. Let me ask you this question. What should be your greatest fear? Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. If I ask you what you are afraid of, you could tell me. We all are afraid of something, some things. I've dealt with a lot of anxiety and fear in my life. It's been a big struggle, much more than I talk about. What are you, what are you afraid of? What are your fears? You could tell me, but here's my question. What should be your greatest fear? What should be the thing you fear the most? Look at verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Look at verse 20. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Here's the greatest fear we should have, to have the face of the Lord against us. Because we do evil. The greatest fear we should have is that the very memory of us would be cut off. The greatest fear we should have is that we would be slayed by our affliction because we're wicked. The greatest fear we should have is that we will be condemned because we are unrighteous and we hate that which is righteous. I remember of all the things I've ever been afraid of, of all the things that I've ever struggled with, I remember the greatest terror in my life. I was 17 years old. I had been steeped in sin for several years. Ten years from a confession of faith in Jesus and a baptism at Carson Road Baptist Church in Centerpoint. 
feeling something was not right in my life, taking a copy of the Bible that my mom had bought me and opening it up and my eyes falling, the Hebrews chapter 6, that says that if those who could taste the good things of God were to turn and walk away, they couldn't be brought back to repentance. And I looked at that, and in that moment I believed God had washed His hands of me, and I was doomed to hell. And I went to work, and I was in an inventory trailer stocking supplies, and for two hours I cried harder than I've ever cried in my life and begged God to let that not be true. I would love to tell you He showed up in that trailer and healed me of that fear in that moment. It's not my testimony. My testimony is that He healed me of that. But it was a process. What I didn't know is He was already with me before I ever got to the trailer because I feared the Lord. And my very fear of the Lord was the grace of the Lord. Some of us might do good to put ourselves for a moment in the fearful place of what it would be like to have God's face against us. Because in grace, we've grown up never thinking about it. Because from youth, we've walked with Him. But don't stay there. Don't linger in that fear. Because the point of Advent this week, the point of the light of the world stepping into darkness is Jesus is your salvation. And if you fear the Lord and you ask for Christ to save you, He will deliver you from all your fears. From the greatest fear of God's face being against you to all the lesser fears that you might face in this life. Looking to Christ in faith, which is, in your notes, shown in repentance, is the path to righteousness. Romans 3 says that there is now a way to receive the righteousness of God that's not about obedience. There is a way for you to have God's face towards you in favor, not against you because of your evil and wickedness. And that way is not doing good and trying harder. It is believing in Christ and what He has done for you. Believing in His birth, in His life, His death, and His resurrection. And you show that in your life by repentance of sin. By living a life in which you constantly see what is not of God and you turn back to Jesus and ask for help. And when you do that, when you look to Him in that way, you can receive all of His promises that are toward the righteous. So what are those promises that are yours in Christ? Look at verse 22. Start there. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. If you cling to Christ like that drowning boy in the ocean, you will never stand before God in judgment. Because Christ 
hung before God in judgment on your behalf. You will never be condemned. Does that mean your actions don't matter? No. There's reward on this earth, and there's loss of reward, and there is a way to please God and displease Him. But if you cling to Christ to be saved from the drowning that will come in sin, you will never be condemned by God. What have we already learned? Those who look to Him will never be put to shame. There will never be a moment you will regret looking to Jesus. The world may ridicule you for it. People may say, why are you not trying to solve your problems this way? Why are you not walking this path? You may, you may be ridiculed, you may be questioned, but you will never, ever, ever be put to shame for trusting Christ. Look at the rest of these promises. They are yours if you look to Him. Verse 17 down. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. Does He hear everyone in this way? He hears the righteous in this way. How are you righteous? Cling to Jesus. He delivers them out of all their troubles. You'll face troubles. He will deliver you out of them all. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Every brokenhearted person on earth. Here, it's talking about the brokenhearted who are in Christ. He is near them. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You will face a lot. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Not a single affliction will overcome you. Those promises are yours when you cling to Jesus. Like that drowning boy in the ocean. Seek the Lord. Expect Him to answer. Be quick to express your gratitude in every way possible. Get creative with it. Cultivate that gratitude in your heart.